Thank you very much for the opportunity for, um, to speak today on what really is a fascinating subject and one that's very close to my heart. Um, following on from William's introduction, I'm going to cover the following aspects. So first of all, a bit about the need for evidence and research and policy making. Where do we actually use evidence and, and research? What might be considered the most influential sources of evidence and research? And why those sources might be considered influential? What are factors might be underpinning their level of influence? I'm also going to talk a bit about the roots by which evidence um, has an impact on policy making. What are sort of some of the formal and less formal channels? And lastly, what are some of the challenges uh, going forward in effectively using the evidence base to really shape and inform policy making in higher education? So I'll be speaking from my perspective um, is from working in government um, as an economist in the Treasury and also uh, working in departments that are predecessors to the current uh, Department for Education and also Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. So they were called DTI, some of you may remember DTI, and, and the rather short-lived DS, um, Innovation, Universities and Skills. And I'll also be speaking from my perspective as um, what I like to think of policy influencer working at the Russell Group and in my current role at Universities UK. And I'd also like to think that I bring the perspective of not only being, say, a policy influencer, where I use the evidence and research, but we also in-house generate research and evidence um, that we hope is influential as well. So a bit like William said, seeing things from a variety of, of, of different perspectives, seeing things from both sides. So, thinking about the need for evidence and research, so let's look at some of the demand for evidence and research um, and, and from policy makers. So evidence is needed at all stages of policy making. So from the earliest stages of creating ideas, of scoping the problem, um, identifying an issue that requires policy attention. But I think evidence also has a role in challenging preconceived ideas. And so ministers may come to the table with some ideas um, that they might have picked up from speaking to colleagues, speaking their own personal experience, um, speaking to their constituents. And so actually they may be conscious of a problem and want to do something about it, but they may be really unaware of the scale of the problem. They might think the problem is bigger than it is or smaller than it is. So I think evidence and research has a really key role here to really challenge uh, policymakers' perceptions. Evidence is also needed to develop solutions to these problems, thinking through what might be feasible, what, what might not be feasible, and sort of estimating what the impact of a policy might be. So these are all really sort of important ingredients in, in policy development, designing and implementing policy. Um, and what is also really important for evidence in terms of the role of evidence, and what might sometimes be overlooked, is the role that evidence has to play in communicating policy intentions. So you might design the most beautiful, exquisite policy, but unless you can really bring on board stakeholders, unless you can convince the public, the media, that this is a good policy, then actually your policy might fail. It might not achieve the desired outcome that you're looking for because you haven't brought stakeholders on board. And that is where government really looks to evidence research for points and speeches and, and communicating policy and they, they really look for evidence to kind of um, back those points up. Finally, and, and um, research has a really important role to play in evaluating 
the impact of the policy that hopefully will feed through into future policy making. Now, although I've drawn a circle here, of course the policy making process is not that straightforward. It's, it's messy, it's iterative, it's, it's, you, know, you might skip a stage, you might come back to it, you might skip a stage entirely. So it is a messy process. Thinking a bit about the sources of evidence in research. Where, does, where do policymakers kind of turn to for, for the evidence in research? And I've put on the slide here some of the sources of, of evidence in research. So academic research, research from policy institutes, um, research from international organisations, think tanks, consultancy, um, commission research from government, sector groups such as the University of the UK, and also you've got the research that is done in-house by civil servants, by their special advisors, by their own policy um, units. So I've also got on the slide there some of the factors that might actually affect the influence of these different sources. Now, if I go through them, I think it's fair to say that policymakers really greatly value independent research, the degree of independence and degree of objectivity of, of, of evidence. It really enhances credibility of policy making and it lends great weight to, to, um, to policy, to, to arguments. And I recall as a, as a civil servant when we put things out for official consultation and receiving some submissions back, that going through the submissions, I would dismiss some submissions that were overtly self-interested without any evidence. Of course, this is quite, quite ironic now. I work for a lobby group, but you know, I, I do remember as a civil servant, I, I looked through some submissions and I thought, well, of course they're going to say that, of course, and they're not really backing it up with any sort of real evidence as far as I can see, and that immediately went straight, straight into the bin or, or the delete key. So I think independence is really important, and I think that's where academic research really has a distinct advantage over other sources. Um, perhaps listed, listed on, on here. And also I think this is where research from international organisations such as the OECD also has a distinct advantage. Um, I think it's also true to say that how comprehensive your research is, that how robust it is, how rigorous it is, the better. And that is going to carry greater weight and um, policy makers like that. Um, again, I would say academic research has distinct advantages here over, say, other sources. But the timing is really important. And I have to say, no matter how comprehensive your research is, if there's a political imperative to do something, all the evidence in the world might not change that. But the evidence could change how it is done. So. I mean, I'll, I'll use an example that I worked on a great deal in government, and that was the research impact agenda. And um, there was, at the time when I, I sort of was newly in post, um, sort of there was this need to think about the rate. I think the question framed to us was, what is the rate of return on investment in research? And of course, as a researcher, I said that's a really impossible question. But I went through all the literature, looked through, um, you know, we did literature reviews, we talked to um, the academic community, we commissioned research from consultants, and we put a lot of evidence up to ministers saying, actually, it's not, you can't put a single number in terms of investment research, rate of return, impact of research. It's a pretty impossible question. But we got the answer back, which was, that's all very well, great evidence, interesting read, 
but we want to do something about this. Sure. Go away and sort out what is feasible and what is not feasible. So that is a real, an example that sticks in my mind of you might go and do the research, you might have the most comprehensive research on the table, but there's still that political imperative is we must do something about this perceived problem. Um, and I think that imperative has continued to, to the current day. I mean, now we that's what started within government, looking at research council funding mechanisms, looking at pathways into impacts, and then what we've also had the relatively recent introduction of the REF um, and the impact component. So, but it all started from we need to be better at measuring the impact of research. So timing is important, but also relevance is important in terms of the impact of research on, on policy making. I think there's an incredible thirst for research that is sort of timely, almost real-time real in terms of its timing, that government wants to know what is happening, what is the impact of policy that has been implemented just in the last couple of years. Now, we all know as researchers that's a pretty impossible question because it takes time to collect the data. It takes time to pull a research team together, to bid for funding, to determine your methodology, to carry out the research, to look at, to make sure it's robust, to, if, you, if you're doing quantitative research, to check that the errors are clear. It, this all takes time. And by the time you actually do the research and you have a final product, it might be that you're commenting on a policy that was from a number of years ago and the policy attention has moved on to something else. So I think it is, it is a problem. And I think that that is where perhaps some of the sources on the slide has a slight edge, they have a slight edge over academic research because they are able to do something that might be perceived as quick and dirty but actually plays into that need from policymakers for analysis right now, developments right now. And, you know, I mean, I'll use an example from a university's UK point of view. Um, we often get asked about the impact of policies um, that have been introduced relatively recently. And so what we tend to do is we go and speak to our members. We go and do a survey of our members um, or we interview our members. And now we fully realise this is nowhere near a formal evaluation of policy. Um, but it is something that helps us in terms of our influence and in terms of the demand from policymakers for intelligence right now. I think another factor that really impacts upon um, the influence of these different sources of, of evidence is the ease of interpretation. And I think this is where academic research, um, it, it, I think my experience has been a bit mixed. And I've worked with some researchers who are very sort of um, very good at realising that there is a need to distill years of hard work in terms of research into three bullet points that can be sent easily to, to a minister. But there are other researchers that I've worked with who say, actually, no, I can't do that, or it's too difficult, or want to add a lot of caveats into what, the, say, the key conclusions are of, of the research. Now, I, as a researcher, I, again, I am fully sympathetic, and I understand why we want to do that, because it's very scary to go out on a limb and say, my research says X, and not to place any caveats around that. But sometimes that does not play necessarily well with say, policymakers who are writing a speech for the minister. Um, obviously, if, you, if you're a minister giving a speech, you want to be quite sort of clear and confident, and you, you don't want to say, well, this research says this, but there are all these caveats around it. You want to project this air of confidence. So again, I think the sort of how we, how we gather 
um, and communicate the findings of research is really important in terms of how it's picked up by policymakers. Moving on to channels of influence, and I think that what I've, I think it's worth reflecting on sort of how evidence and research has an impact on on policy making, and this of course can determine how influential um, that piece of research can be. So I've listed on the slide here some of the direct ways that evidence can <coughs> influence policy making, and so that goes straight from uh, direct meetings with ministers where, where you're presenting your research or you're commenting on a particular policy development. Uh, there is research that is commissioned by government. Um, you've got membership of re review groups, committees that the government sets up, roundtables, um, which tend to sort of have a broader audience, um, direct sort of formal consultations. Um, and of course, there's parliamentary inquiries, which um, and often invite written evidence. And if you put in a really good submission of written evidence, that increases the likelihood that you'll be asked to submit oral evidence. Um, and of course, there's the direct dissemination of research findings. You, you complete a piece of research, um, you put it out there, um, you might do a press release around it, that sort of thing. Now, I, I, my, my sort of um, my take on these direct channels is that with academic researchers, I would say that the more experienced researchers probably do make use of a wide range of these channels. They may be asked, um, experienced researchers could be asked directly to present oral evidence at parliamentary inquiries. They may get the invitation to the roundtable. Um, they may ask, be asked to be a member of different review groups. But I think it is a challenge for early career researchers who perhaps don't have that degree of influence within government already to get those invitations. Um, so I think there is a bit of variation there. I also think perhaps there is, um, perhaps some researchers are more willing than others to make use of these channels. So I do recall, um, for example, formal consultations asking some researchers, are you, are you planning on um, submitting to this? And it was, well, my research is out there, you can kind of read it if you want to, but I'm not going to put in a formal submission. And I think even if, and I, and I think obviously that may have an impact on how civil servants might, to the extent that they pick up your research, even if you just put in a one-page submission saying, my research is here and it relates to this question, that is probably better than nothing at all. Um, so I do think that how different these different sources of evidence on the right-hand side make use of these channels is worth thinking about. And I would say different stakeholders here um, make, well, for example, us, Universities UK as a sector group, we try and use all of these channels as much as possible, but perhaps other others here perhaps don't use all of these channels. And I think if you as a researcher, you're thinking perhaps I don't have time or some of these channels are not right for me, some of the direct channels, it's worth thinking about some of the indirect channels. So the indirect channels is where you can build relationships with those stakeholders who do make use of these direct channels. So that's relationships with think tanks, um, it's relationships with sector groups like the UK, it's relationships with civil servants. And I do think, I have sort of found that sometimes there is a bit of them and us mentality as a civil servant, and I found that quite quite strange being, I was newly uh, coming out from the university, I've been researching myself in terms of trying to get things published, and um, 
and, and I was very much from the perspective of, actually, I'm a researcher as well, but I'm, I happen to be working in government. So I think we kind of need to sort of, you know, dispel that myth that actually civil servants are unhelpful. Um, sometimes they can be your greatest ally in terms of feeding in evidence into and the impact on policy making. Um, they'll be, some of them maybe researchers themselves. Um, and so that we shouldn't sort of build up too much around that sort of them and us um, perspective. Um, and I think, actually, the relationships that ministers have with these stakeholders on the right-hand side, um, with these sources of evidence, does change over time. So when I was in government, um, under a Labour government, the number 10 policy unit and the Treasury were very influential, very important. Now, I think with changes in governments, um, I think there's been a move away from, sort of, because the civil service has, has shrunk, there's been less money available to, to fund the civil service, so actually there's a greater reliance now on external sources of evidence, so evidence from think tanks, evidence from policy institutes. So I think, in fact, there's a real opportunity here for those of us who are now out, who are outside government to really influence policy um, because of this change and this shift um, away from traditional sort of civil service providing the analysis and providing um, all of the, the, the evidence in advance. So it is worth thinking about relationships with influences to feed in um, research. It's also worth thinking about the media because um, I mean I think obviously as well I think we have at UK we have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the media but we do recognize that they have a really important role in bringing issues to the attention of policymakers. Um, so but the thing is the media tends to pick out key facts or headline grabbing elements of research. There's not very much room for nuance. So it's a way, so I think we do really need to think about as research producers how we handle the media and, and use it to the best of our um, abilities and, and to our advantage. So challenges going forward. Um, I mean, I think what we're witnessing at the moment in the higher education sector is we're, we're witnessing significant change. So with the passing of the higher education and research bill, and that's going to really change the operating environment for the universities. The UK has voted to leave the EU and that's going to have far-reaching consequences um, on domestic policies and therefore implications for the higher education sector. And we've already seen indications of the direction that immigration policy is going to take with the most recent party conference, Conceptory Party Conference, and of course this will have consequences and implications for students and staff at, at universities. The government is developing an industrial strategy which looks like it may shape future funding policies and there's a strong push on social mobility and a country that works for everyone and we've already seen a, a school's green paper and proposals affecting universities. But I think we as a community seeking to influence policy based on evidence and when we have we face challenges and some of these challenges are reflected in the quotes that I've, I've put on this slide. Um, and some of these quotes are from, from a Guardian article about sort of the impact of um, social sciences on, on policy making. I mean, is there a uniform shift away from research and expertise? I mean, not, I, I don't think so, not necessarily. I think it is about spotting those opportunities that are open to influencing and where there is scope to shape the outcome. I think it's always going to be difficult when we come up against political imperative, but I think we need to recognise where the evidence can play a role and should play a role. 
Um, I think there's also a need to consider how we balance the need for timely and relevant research with the timescales needed to produce rigorous, robust, comprehensive research. Now, I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge. I just think that there is this real um, issue with, in terms of research being needed now and the time it takes to produce comprehensive research. I don't think that can be solved very easily at all. Um, I think there is a need to maximise the use of the channels open to influencing, both direct and indirect. And I think very much around that, there's something perhaps we can think about in terms of the building of relationships between policymakers and researchers. And that's where I think um, like um, organ um, funded initiatives like the Centre for Global Research and other initiatives can really help, I think, because it really builds that conversation. It sort of creates an ongoing dialogue between policymakers and, and researchers, and, and to get away from that them and us mentality. Finally, I think it's about communicating the evidence base. I think we need to think about how can research findings be communicated so it's, they can be communicated clearly and succinctly, but not oversimplifying. So those are just my thoughts, um, and I will now hand, I'll leave it, there, leave it there and hand over to Helen. Thanks very much. <laughs>